about 10% of great copywriting is actually writing. And the other 90% is doing the work to really understand that customer and understand them in a way that goes beyond this cardboard cutout list of traits. You're listening to Customer Show, the podcast that explores what makes people tick, click, and buy. I'm your host, Caitlin Burgoyne. I'm a marketer by trade and a four-time founder by choice. And I believe whoever gets closer to the customer wins. So here's the multi-million dollar question. In a world where everyone is fighting for your buyer's attention, how do people like us marketers and entrepreneurs who want to drive more sales without working around the clock or resorting to shady marketing techniques? How do we persuade more customers to buy from us? That's the question. And this show has the answers. My guest today has done something really remarkable something that many service providers only dream about. He was able to match his skill with the market need. He identified a valuable service that he could replicate time and time again, and then he built a scalable company around one specific service offering. You may have heard of this concept before. This is often called building a productized service. But my guest didn't jump the gun and go all in on this idea right away. As you'll hear, He strategically chose his market. He listened to what those customers needed. And then he created a repeatable process that his team could deliver on again and again. My guest today is Joel Klecky. Joel is a conversion copywriter and he's the founder of Case Study Buddy. His business, Case Study Buddy, helps businesses create no-hassle case studies that actually provide value to the reader and help them close more deals. So whether you want to learn how to create better case studies or you want to get a behind the scenes look on what it takes to build a highly scalable service business, you're really going to love this episode. Joel is a conversion copywriter and what he says in his Twitter bio that I love, he says, pray for your competitors because once you hire me, they're going to need it. So Joel, tell us a little bit about conversion copywriting and like why you're so good at it. So conversion copywriting is essentially direct responses, sort of digital sister and and the sister sort of moniker is well chosen because a lot of the people at the top of this industry are women, which I think is pretty neat and pretty special. And it just so happens a lot of them are Canadian as well. But conversion copywriting is all about driving action. It's taking the principles of direct response copywriting and taking essentially, let's say you have a sales page or a landing page, somewhere where you want someone to sign up, or you want someone to download something, or you want someone to pick up the phone and call you or place an order or buy now. My job is not getting more people to that page necessarily. It's getting more of the people who are coming there to take action, to do the thing that you want them to do. It's not this sort of dark black art or pulling the wool over people's eyes. It's not this sort of used salesman kind of mentality, used car salesman, I should say, mentality where you're selling them a lemon or you're just telling them anything to, to get them to act. What it really is about at its core is understanding how an audience makes decisions and more than just this cardboard cutout of a persona, but getting into what motivates them and what really drives 
the right kind of person to make the right decision for the right product for them or service or solution. So I get to do a whole lot of talking to customers and customer research. I get to translate that into this sort of mix of creative writing and, and, and with a scientific sort of framework and approach. And the big goal at the end of the day is just to get more people to take action that will benefit them or, or bring them closer to realizing real value in some way. Awesome. Okay. So if I'm looking at conversion rate optimization versus like typical copywriting, how are these different? What's different? So I think the issue of names is one that even people in the field trip over all the time because people will say, well, anytime I'm writing something, I'm trying to accomplish something or drive some kind of action. Like maybe the action is I want them to feel educated, but it's, it's not really about that. I think copywriting on the whole, like, especially when we look at it in the traditional sort of ad agency side of things, there's sort of like creative and brand copywriting where, you know, you're trying to create awareness or leave a lasting impression. But specific to the conversion side is you've got a very specific goal. You've got a very specific, say, door you want someone to open and go through and you want them to do it now. You want them to take action now. Uh, so where a copywriter might work on an overall ad campaign or work on you know, a billboard, or we've all seen maybe Mad Men and they work on these broader kind of slogans and, and, and you know brand taglines and that sort of thing. My job overlaps with sort of branding and positioning and, and messaging, but it takes all of that and laser focuses it on driving an appropriate action at an appropriate step in that buyer journey. You talked a little bit about how you go about doing that. You mentioned, you know, doing customer research and interviews, which listeners know that I'm a massive nerd for. So can you walk us through your process a little bit? Like if somebody's getting started, they're trying to think about like how they can improve their own copy. Where do they start? To start off, we have to rethink the way most people think about writing and the way most people by default kind of think about writing is sitting down behind a keyboard with that blank cursor blinking and kind of trying to capture lightning in a bottle or be really clever. And as Joanna Weeb puts it, the queen bee of the conversion copywriting world and a Canadian, she says, and it's accurate, about 10% of great copywriting is actually writing. And the other 90% is doing the work to really understand that customer and understand them in a way that goes beyond this cardboard cutout list of traits, you know, demographic and, and that sort of thing. We're less interested in the demographics of a person and more interested in what motivates them. So when I sit down to work on a project, there's always at least two phases and sometimes three. The first phase is research and analysis. And what practical things are we doing in that phase? Well, we want to go get both qualitative information and quantitative information. And the two really have to play nice together, which I'll get into in a moment. So on the qualitative side of things, we're doing things like running customer surveys. And when we run these customer surveys, we're not asking them about their opinions or wouldn't it be nice if we developed this thing and so on and so forth. We're asking them about their journey, their experience of buying from you, what it looked like before they came to you, what the experience of your product or solution was like, what surprised them, what did they like, what caught them off guard, how did it feel to have that resolved, and then the after. So not only what results have they achieved or what's been made possible for them, but why that matters, the impact of the result. So we're digging into those things to kind of get this look at 
okay, what is the journey they went through? What was the trigger that sent them looking in the first place? How did it feel not to have the solution? What was the big goal when they went looking for a solution? And then moving kind of on down all the way to the end. So things like surveys help us do that at scale. But then we get on the phone and we have customer interviews and we validate the things that we learn in surveys or again, digging into their story, their experience, the jobs that they hire this product or solution to do for them. And and we get into that. In addition, on the qualitative side, that we don't just want to listen to what people say, we need to watch what they actually do. So a lot of my time gets spent watching recorded user sessions. So watching how people engage with information on a site or a landing page. Where do they stop? What do they pay attention to? Where do they land and where do they go next? What gaps might be present there? So we start watching, okay, once we've determined this is kind of what the journey looks like and the anxieties, hesitation, pain points that drive it, how do people interact with the information as it's there today? We'll also look at things like customer chat logs, or just, I should say, chat logs on the whole. So if you interact with customers through sales emails or chat logs, if there's this place of interaction with a prospect before they become a lead, I'll dig in there and and look at things like what questions are coming up all the time? What frustrations are being surfaced as part of that journey? What gaps are leads basically putting up their hands and saying, hey, I don't know this, or I can't find this information, or I'm, I want this comparison to be more obvious for me. So looking at the ways people engage with information tied together with what their expectations are, how much they know, what they want, that's how we start to sort of build out this por- profile, a deeper profile of who these people are and how we sell to them. And then on the quantitative end, we're doing things like looking at Google Analytics and looking at where they land and again, what are the most common paths and how do they navigate those? And then within the qualitative information, we're also doing things like looking for not just the language they use to describe these things because we want to mirror that language and use that in the way that we communicate, but also for themes and we're looking for trends and we're looking for how do we put some numbers to this qualitative information so that we get a real sense of people's priorities because people want a lot of things or they need a lot of things, but some of those things are inherently more important to them than others when they're making a decision. So it's this combination of surveys, interviews, chat logs with analytical tools and recorded user sessions, reviews and testimonials out in the wild, this big kind of gamut of different sources we can go to to understand how people think and feel and make decisions surrounding what they buy and and why they buy it. Okay, let's take a quick time out. If you're listening to today's episode, I bet you're already imagining how you can apply all these ideas to your work. But before you go out and eagerly rewrite all of the copy on your website or change your whole marketing strategy, first, I need you to ask yourself this very important question. Do you know, without a shadow of a doubt, who your most valuable customer segment is? If not, you're in trouble. You don't have time to waste by chasing the wrong customers. Even with all of these ideas from our amazing guests, if you're chasing the wrong people, it's going to feel like an uphill battle. But if you're ready to stop wasting time on marketing that doesn't work, and attract more dream customers, then I've got something you are going to love. I put together a free tool just for you. I call it my customer ranking calculator. 
Now, in a matter of minutes, this quick exercise can help you to gain clarity around which customer segments you should focus on and which ones you may want to stop serving. That sounds good, right? So if you want to download this free tool, head on over to customercamp.co forward slash calculator. That's customercamp.co forward slash calculator. Okay, back to the show. So you have just laid out an incredible system. And if anybody's listening, I hope you're taking notes because he's giving you gold. And so once you've got that, once you have this like, you know, incredible asset of understanding the types of language that people are using. You've done your research. You've looked at the data. Let's say you're looking at somebody's landing page. Are you taking what's there and improving it? Or are you starting from scratch or it, does it depend? It really, it really depends. And it depends on a few different things. It's nice to come into a situation where you can just tweak or change things or where a page is most of the way there. But I try to approach every project as kind of a blank slate. It's not that we assume everything is broken. I think it's very dangerous to just do what a lot of companies do when they go through a redesign or they launch a campaign, which is completely disregard all the lessons they've learned from past campaigns or just, well, we don't like our website. None of it's working. Well, some of it is. You don't want to kill that part. So Part of what happens in that research and analysis phase is you get some clarity surrounding what messages or what hierarchies you're using today are actually working. And you want to preserve those things. So I go into campaigns with the mindset of being open to learning anything and everything. And once I have started to pin down some trends and themes and identify buying triggers and pain points and anxieties, now I've kind of got a baseline to evaluate what's there against. So I can look and say, okay, based on what we know about the customer, for example, a a real example uh, from my work with HubSpot is the primary message that we were pushing when we were working on their CRM platform prior to the whole research phase was, well, it's free. And this was a new offering for HubSpot. They were trying to get as many users as possible. So they were really pushing hard on the, it's free, it's free, it's free. And it was an attractive element, but when we actually talked to the people who were you know, signing up or who were interested in it, it turns out that free was just one component and it actually mattered much more in terms of will this be adopted? Will my staff actually use it? Is it intuitive? Uh, and will it save me time and help me close more deals? So we we're able to adjust the messaging from just emphasizing free at all turns to bring in some of these other messages and these other alleviations of pain that audiences were really looking for. Another example that might make this really tangible is I was working with a company out of the UK and they provide a service that helps facilitate a divorce online. And one of the things that they saw and and we identified in their analytics as a bit of a mystery was, okay, in the real world, we know women initiate divorce far more often than men. So why do we have this landslide of conversions in favor of men? Why are most of the buyers men and and not women here and we didn't have a good answer so we took that sort of as a well let's let's try to learn about this and you know a couple things sort of poked out once we started to dig so we saw in chat logs for example we isolated conversations that were obviously women and and conversations that were obviously men 
And we saw some trends. We saw women were far more likely to be caring for the dependents. Well, it turns out, bringing this back to your question, when we look back at the landing page, we weren't really answering the question of, hey, is this suitable if I have a bunch of dependents? Is that an issue you can handle? We also learned that women were far more likely to be fearful of their spouse. So they needed to know, do I ever have to sit across the table from this person? Well, again, when we use that as our barometer and going, this is the information they need and took it back to the page, we weren't adequately answering that question or really answering it at all. So by making some very simple changes, introducing some uh, different ideas and addressing some different pain points, they saw a six figure lift, you know, in, in, yearly revenue for what equated to essentially 15 minutes of changes after, you know, a good solid week of research. So it's important not to throw everything out, not to assume everything is broken. But once you start learning about customers, once you pinpoint these things, use them as sort of a different lens to look through and say, okay, if I'm a person with these concerns, if I'm someone trying to find answers to these questions, if I'm someone who cares deeply about this, does this headline speak to me? Is this page organized in a way that I can find that information very quickly? What I love about this, Joel, is that I can imagine that, you know, that team behind the, the the product, they're not sitting in a boardroom able to come up with those insights on their own. And you can't hop on a call with them and offer that insight. Like, that's the kind of thing that you have to get by talking to customers. Otherwise, you're probably just assuming, right? Yeah, I mean, there, there were lots of assumptions that had been made even that wound up to be damaging. So one of the assumptions is, well, surely if we make things more convenient, more people will buy. So on on the strength of that assumption, they had built out this whole calculator for something called crown fees. So when you get a divorce, these are the fees that you cannot avoid. You have to pay to the government or what have you. So they're like, well, people want to know what they're spending. So let's put together this crown fee calculator and, and we'll make things easy for them. Well, when we looked at the analytics and compared that to some of what we saw in chat logs, the minute that people started to fixate on what they had to spend, the minute you made it easy for them to start evaluating what would be flying out of their pocket, especially financially vulnerable women, the less likely they were to buy. Completely missed in that whole ordeal was the fact that they had alleviation programs that could actually help people were financially vulnerable afford those crown fees. So tying it back again, it's not about burying information or being deceptive. It would have been morally and ethically wrong, not to mention, you know, some sort of hidden fee if there was no solution to it. So that would not have been the, the right answer. Even if conversions had gone up, I wouldn't have felt good about that. But what I did feel good about is killing the calculator and instead placing the emphasis on the financial assistance programs. I can feel good about letting them know, hey, these are the fees. This is typically what you will spend, but let's not fixate on a calculator. Let's instead talk about the fact that there's some very real help for you to get this done. So we can make a lot of assumptions about what people want and what's going to be valuable to them, but we don't know until we ask them and then watch how they behave when that's present. So, so true. And so anybody who's listening to this right now, I'm sure that they understand <laughs> why people, when you get hired, why their competitors should be worried. But right now, I know that you're not doing a lot of copywriting projects personally, and that's because you're actually working on something else. And so can you share with our listeners, how did you get into the case study writing business? Like, what's the story there? Yeah, so I I still do copywriting projects, but fewer of them for sure. I like to kind of really sink my teeth in with one company, but it just so happened that I was coming off a project with a company some some years ago, and 
my connection there was someone who sat on their board and he advised a whole bunch of different software startups. And so the project that I had worked on was web copy. It went really well. And he came back to me and said, that was great. We loved working with you. I advised this little startup called Pingboard and uh, they need a case study done. Is that something you do? And I thought, well, if you're the one asking, absolutely it is. Like, I'm sure I can figure it out. And so I thought, okay, yeah, I'll, you know, I'll give that a try. And and so I said, sure, sure, that's something I'm I'm willing to take on. And through the process of putting that case study together, just it was a series of kind of light bulb moments. The first thing that I realized is, whoa, this is way harder than even I expected as a writer. There are so many moving pieces to a customer success story that have to go right for that asset to work. You need a great interview. You need buy-in in the first place from the customer to be featured. You need proper release to be able to tell that story. You need to tell that story in a way that's not narcissistic and boring that, that people <laughs> actually want to read. So in doing that, I went, okay, this asset's pretty tough, but everyone needs it. Every software company, every B2B business needs these social proof assets. They all rely on them. Sales teams need this stuff like oxygen. Marketing wants to have these stories they can tout in their ads on their site and their sales pages. And so it was kind of that intersection of conversion and, and the content writing where I went, okay, all right, there's an opportunity here, I think. And so in realizing that I thought, well, surely someone's put up their hand and said, this is all we do. And we're really, really good at it. We've optimized the process. And I searched the web and I left surprised and and kind of disappointed that nobody had. There was Casey Hibbard. So she is essentially, if there's a queen bee of case studies, I guess she would probably be it. She was the known specialist, I guess. Uh, but there was no kind of boutique agency who was like, this is all we do. It was either this add-on service to this myriad of other services, which I knew if you're not focusing on these, you can't possibly have a, a really airtight process for it. Uh, and, and then just the odd freelancer here or there who couldn't possibly own the whole market. So I kind of thought, well, why not me? I'll, I'll build the company that can own this process and whack all the moles involved in doing these really well. And so I, I started kind of writing them myself more and more, sort of floating the opportunity out to friends. And then in time, the team grew and, you know, the opportunities grew. And now I'm really proud of where we've gotten to and who we get to do these for and the processes that we've built to make them possible. Well, I've heard just nothing but raves about people that are from people who've worked with you. So thinking about this from the customer's perspective, you said that, you know, sales teams, they need these assets. Marketers want these assets. They're just this linchpin in terms of taking prospects and getting them over the finish line. From the customer's perspective, why do you think case studies are so persuasive? I think there's a few different reasons. I think, number one, when they're done well, they're undeniable social proof. So as we see even things like GPT-3 rolling out and, you know, the fake reviews and all this sort of fake news, when a case study is done really well, it's undeniable proof because it revolves around a story of someone like you that you can verify actually exists and runs a company like yours, but someone like you with a problem you have made the decision you're debating and got the result you want. That's what's persuasive about it. It's undeniable proof that the company can do what they promise when they're done well, when they're written well, when they have the details, when you let the customer 
drive the story. And it's a customer success story, not a you success story. So, okay. So I'm going to stop you there. You say when they're done well, tell me like, what is the difference between a great case study and just an average one? Yeah, I think, you know, the, the tragedy of most case studies is that most of them are ugly, narcissistic, boring, and shallow. People don't put a lot of thought into them. The assumption people make about case studies is it's all about the result. You know, just tell them the metric and, and show, show off, you know, the, the big sexy number and that's it. Well, what you get when you do that, most case studies, unfortunately, revolve around the company and not their customer. It's like a big look at us. And then there's not a lot of meat there. It's absent of how did this happen? And why did you take the path that you took? Why did you use the strategy that you used? And did you pivot at some point? And and what did that look like? And when the customer voice is absent, I think this, if there's one core thing I had to pin it on is great customer success stories are human stories first, business stories second. So in the absence of the customer voice, when it's all metrics and bullet points and process, you know, we did this and then this and then this, what you miss is all of that stuff that influences how people make decisions. What was the pain? How did it feel to have that pain? And what were the stakes of not solving that pain? How did they arrive at the conclusion to choose you? What worried them initially? Why were they skeptical of your solution? You should talk about those things in studies, because then when you reach that grand conclusion, that big sexy number, and arguably more important, what that number made possible for them, that impact, or maybe there's no number and that's perfectly okay too. But when you reach that big conclusion, it's meaningful because there's an actual human relatable journey and not just a set of tasks completed and results achieved. I'm hearing words like feelings and storytelling and emotions. And I know sometimes, especially people who are B2B, they think that that doesn't really have a place in B2B. Tell us how important are the stories and the feelings? How important are the emotional pieces? It'd be wrong to say that now, you know, we would delve into like the realm of poetry. Like we're not out there to like jerk tears, right? Like, I think that it's not that we want to have this like cinematic quality, like the music swells, like, we're not (laughs) going for that. But at the same time, frustration is a pretty universal feeling. Fear uh, is a pretty universal feeling. The the sort of need to keep up or overcome, you know, fight off a giant, those are stories that we can relate to. And so bringing in how it felt to face a challenge or how it felt to finally have that solution in place or how elated someone is at the solution. And and I'm not talking just to somebody that says, this was great. I loved working with them. I'm talking about being able to say things like, I no longer have to chase executives around the office to give them their paychecks. And it's put hours back in my day and years back in my life. Like quotes like that, that's sort of the, the level of emotion that we're going for. It's not that it's a sob story or we're writing poetry, but we want, you know, people make decisions. Businesses don't make decisions. Businesses are made up of people who make decisions. Those people have to evaluate options. They have to get buy-in from their bosses. They have to embrace the risk of making that decision. They have to deal with the follow positive or negative. And so when you address those pieces, when you can bring those human elements into the story, it's like a little reassuring tap on the shoulder that like, hey, 
this is a real person who made a real decision, who's again, a person like you with the problem you have, the feelings you're experiencing, the challenge that you're facing, who made the decision you're debating with all the fear and trepidation and work that went into doing it and got the result you want and feels like you want to feel at the end of it. I think it's a critical component to weave in. It doesn't have to be the core focus of how they felt, but it should be there because it helps round everything else out and make it unique and bring life into that story as opposed to just, again, this lists of tasks and outcomes and so on. I really love this, that how you're talking about how important it is that these be relatable, that there be, you know, that you as a, as a reader should be able to see yourself and potentially the same journey that you're going on with your company and the struggles you're having and be able to equate that as you're reading these. And so I, that makes me wonder, like, how many case studies should the average company have? Do they need a couple different ones? What's best practice? Yeah, I think there's this common misconception that like one great story is enough. And don't get me wrong, like one story is better than no stories. And one story can open a a ton of doors for you. But this is where I think sales kind of gets it a little more than marketing because marketing just loves having like a drum to bang, like just something to, uh, you know, a big loud thing they can deploy in the market, be like, here we go. You know, like, and I say that as someone who like works in marketing, right? Like we (laughs) love having the big banner story. Um, but sales on the front line every day, they're coming up against a myriad of pain points or hesitations. They're selling into a number of different roles or industries. Uh, they, they would love to have a story of, you know, let's say that you serve, I don't know, you serve a few different markets. They would love to have a case study for each one of those markets. Uh, if I'm selling to a CTO versus, you know, a CMO, well, the, the even if the product or the solution is the same, the consideration factors might be different. So I would probably love to have a story about, you know, a CTO singing our praises and a, another one where the CMO has, has great things to say. So really, you should have as many customer success stories as there are pain points, anxieties, hesitations, and desired outcomes in your space. And you can interpret those through the lens of, roles and industries and niches. So this is why when you see companies that have like 50 plus studies, you're like, whoa, why don't you guys just call it at three? That's why each one of those stories is ammunition in the clip to target a different situation. Oh, someone's worried about cost. Here's a study that addresses cost. Oh, someone's worried about the IT and security side of this thing. Great. Here's a story about how we accounted for that. Being able to respond to a question or a concern or a hesitation with a story is a superpower. When you have something contextual, like, you know what, we've been there before. And this company, they asked us the same thing. Take a look at this. That's a much more compelling pitch than, well, here's a spec sheet. And so, yeah, like it's almost bottomless, but more than one is probably the the way to think about it. (laughs) All right. So folks, if you have none, you know that you have to get that first one. But after that first one, it sounds like know what the common objections are, because that's what it's like. Am I hearing you correctly where it's like, these are really good tools for helping people to overcome those objections? Is that what I should be thinking about when, when I'm thinking about how to craft the right story? It's about what are the objections? That among other things, I mean, objections is certainly, 
you know, it's it's the obvious point because if I'm concerned about cost or I'm worried about implementation or these different things, having a positive story to counter that fear is fantastic. But case studies can also be used, for example, in upselling. Like, let's say I'm already a happy customer and I'm debating, oh, should I should I pull the trigger and go to that premium plan? Having a story about someone who pulled the trigger and went to the premium plan, it's a huge asset. It helps a lot. So it's not just objections. I think objections is like a very natural starting point, but you can start to think of it through the lens of roles and industries and niches and desired outcomes. So, you know, for for example, like with Belinda Weaver, she is a copywriter. She runs uh, coaching and she sort of helps copywriters build their businesses. Well, one of the things that she now has, having worked with case study by she has a case study for people whose focus is on the finance, right? They're like, I want to hit six figures. She's got a case study for that. She's got another case study for people like, I want to find balance. You know, I'm a, I'm a mom of two kids and I don't have infinite hours to chase dollars. I just want to build something that serves me. Well, she's got a case study for that, you know? And, and so when you think about it, you can start with objections, but it spirals off into desired outcomes and the roles of the people you're selling into, the niches you want to grow into, the different features of your product suite. There are lots of different ways to kind of carve this onion. So going in with a strategy and doing some thinking about, okay, what do we wish we had a story for? Objections might be where you start, but inevitably when you start paying attention, it just kind of balloons and continues to grow. It sounds like this one asset can do so many things. So like, let me ask you, like, if you've got a couple of good case studies, what are some different ways that organizations can actually use these? Yeah, I love this question because right now, not only are most case studies sort of boring and narcissistic and ugly, they're also dramatically underused. So companies kind of shove them on a resources section of the site and forget about them, which is like a massive tragedy because Customer success stories are, I honestly believe, one of the few assets that can be deployed effectively across the entire funnel, and they can be repurposed so many ways. So what do I mean by that? You can use customer success stories in cold outreach. There's few things more powerful than being able to reach out and say, hey, you've never heard of me before, but we've helped companies just like yours. And I know they're just like you because I've done my homework, but we've helped companies just like yours achieve the results that that you're looking for. Here's a tangible example. So it can work in cold outreach. It can be the Mm -hmm. crux of an ad. If there's a particular pain point, you know that your audience has, then being able to present that pain point in an ad and saying, hey, are you struggling with this thing? Here's a story of how someone overcame it. You know, you can use these as top of funnel acquisition type assets. They can also be used in the middle of the funnel for nurturing. So if someone signs up for, let's say I'm a software company, someone signs up and I know that they are, let's say a small business owner, I can integrate in my nurture sequence in the way that I interact with them in the calls that I have with them. I can bring case studies and success stories in to help get them over the line. So I can say, oh, you're worried about this. So here, here's an example of you know, a, a story about that or in the email nurture sequence I, I send out, I can highlight, hey, you know, here's an example of how someone used this feature and got this great result. So I can use them to help you know, acquaint people with the solution and show them the actual value in what I have to offer. Then when we get to sort of the bottom of the funnel, you can use them to close. So if they're teetering on the brink and they say, oh, we need IT to sign off on this because they're big compliance issues and you've got a great story surrounding compliance, now you can pass along and say, hey, we totally understand. We see those concerns all the time. In fact, this customer had them. Here you go. 
you know, and then even beyond the top, middle and bottom of funnel, when we get into retention, when we get into, you know, churned leads, few things are more natural follow up to someone who's kind of fallen out of your funnel than saying, hey, I was remembering our conversation. We had this recent success of someone just like you. I thought you might find it interesting. Check this out. And then there's upselling, as I mentioned, and so on and so forth. So these stories are infinitely repurposable. You can make them long and detailed and meaty for people at that consideration phase. You can make them boil them down to a testimonial for people who just want a quick hit of social proof on a sales page. They are just super flexible and have this ability, this pretty unique ability to cross the entire funnel and be effective at every point. I am so excited for anybody who's listening who may have never thought of it that way, who didn't consider that this one asset, you invest and you get this one asset, but what you're really getting is something that can be redistributed in so many different ways. Everyone who's listening right now is very excited about doing case studies. I I can't imagine they wouldn't be. They are probably really excited about all the different ways that they can deploy these assets. But of course, if you've never done this before, if you're just getting started, it could all feel kind of overwhelming. So if they want to hire you and get the professionals to do this for them. Walk me through the process. How would that work? Yeah, we've we've done a lot of work to try to, I mean, the grand vision is we would love this to be like, you know, push button, get case study. Like that's the that's the big goal. Of course, it's never it's never that simple. Uh, but the way that it works is the only thing we need to do our job, there's there's three things. An introduction to a willing customer a brief from you that you fill out one time on your company so that our writers, our interviewers have that context to tailor their questions. Because going back to misconceptions for a sec, there's a big misconception that, well, if I just have the right interview questions, I can put together a great study. Well, unfortunately, just reading off questions like a a robot does not make for a stunning conversation or a particularly meaty piece. So anyway, Mm -hmm. when we've got the brief from you on your company, your niche, your industry, your product, then we can use that to shape the story, to align the story to your business goals, help you shape a strategy. And then the third one is just a very short brief on this actual customer relationship. So again, to to sum that up, an introduction, a brief on your company, a brief on the customer. and, And after that, the only thing you're responsible for is reviewing a draft and approving things. From there, we take the reins and we schedule a call. We send you an MP3 and a transcript. You can listen back. You can start gleaning insights right away with a little summary email that highlights some of the sexiest stuff that came out of it. And then from there, we manage the entire process. So revisions from your side and theirs, writing up the story, bundling it into beautifully designed assets and then you know giving giving you these these things that you can then take back to your market and even kind of consulting on hey what's the best way to to deploy these things so you know we we want to make the barrier to entry as low as possible and even if you go well that's great but i still need that whole pesky interview to a willing customer how do i possibly get that that's something we can help with too. So help with getting by and kind of coaching you through making the ask, providing resources on how to find stories in your customer base. We really want to be the company that thinks about this holistically and whacks all the moles in the process from start to finish and thinks about this in a way that other people aren't thinking about it. 
This is so exciting. I can't wait for people to check out Case Study Buddy to go look at your website. Because again, remember, Joel is a conversion copywriter. So as you read that site, I bet you you're going to see a lot of your own objections, your desired outcomes, the things that would matter to you reflected back to you in that copy. So at least go and check it out for a great example of what a you know strong website copy could be. And so Joel, looking forward, you know, if somebody wants to learn more about you, about the way that you work, like what would be the first next steps for them to take? Yeah, I think casesavey.com, you can check out our processes. There's a breakdown of pricing on the individual asset pages and you can get a good sense of that. Our blog, we are trying to do some more publishing and, and our attitude and posture has always been, hey, give freely, share information, help people do the thing. And the ones that really value it will be the ones that wind up working with us anyhow. So lots of resources there. My caveat to this next one is I don't always reply quickly, but I always reply. But you can drop me a line on Twitter or LinkedIn. And I I love connecting with people. I love meeting people who are building interesting things, even if now is not the time to help them build those things. It's just great to kind of see what's out there. And, And I always try to leave everyone I interact with better than I found them. So whether that's a referral or a resource or some small way of of helping nudge you in the right direction, that's something I'm excited to do. And then on the conversion copywriting front, you can go visit my very sad, very dated website, (laughs) businesscasualcopywriting.com. Probably not an example you want to be taking. Ironically, in terms of conversion copy, though, I still, for some reason, people seem to love it. But it's you can check out businesscasualcopywriting.com. Same thing there. There's blog posts. There's a lot of instructive stuff. If you you know don't have the bandwidth of the time or the funds to hire a guy like me, there's still plenty there for you to sink your teeth into. And and you know again, I think the world is a better place when everyone's a little bit better at communicating. So you'll probably find some resource there that helps you do that. I love it. I love that you, I know that your website, I've, I've been on your personal site and you are not doing it justice. It is very good. But it's really just a good testament to the fact that even if you know how to do something, even if somebody thinks, I, you know, I could figure out this case study stuff, I could write a great case study. It's about when you're busy and there's other priorities, things that are competing, it's great to just bring in somebody else and let them do the heavy lifting for you. So it's not about whether they could do it. You know, sometimes it's just nice to let somebody else do that work for you and bring that fresh perspective. So I, I I love that you mentioned that. And if you didn't mention this, but I've, I'm a recipient of it, so I think I should mention it. You also have a really awesome newsletter. Is that something that people should sign up for as well? Yeah, I, it's it's something that I've been kind of waging war with in my brain this week, which is why I've maybe suppressed <laughs> it and pushed it down. Uh, I take it really seriously, though, because I, I want every email that I send to be genuinely valuable. I always hate being on lists where they email you just to remind you that they exist. So I do have a newsletter you can sign up on the site. It's at the bottom of the homepage. And I talk about conversion copy and I sprinkle in some stuff on case studies and business building and just my own journey as a dad of two and a guy trying to, you know, build something that matters and and sort of grow it. So, you know, I, I try to send out stuff that is tangibly useful and practical and not just another email that's going to show up in your inbox and make you want to click delete. You are definitely achieving it because there's not a lot of emails that I actually read and yours is always one of them. I thank you for walking me through the whole process. I feel like I want like 30 case studies now, so we will be talking. Thank you. Have an awesome day, Joel. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Hey there. I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening to the show. I absolutely love getting nerdy with you and our guests each week. It is just so much fun. 
And speaking of nerdy marketing stuff, have you heard about the power of reciprocity in marketing? Reciprocity is one of the best methods you can use to persuade people to take action. It's simple. Give something small for free before you ask for a sale. You see this all the time in marketing. Sometimes it's a free sample, a free trial, or even a free podcast like this one. With that in mind, I've got a small favor to ask. If you've gotten at least one aha moment while listening to the show, could you go to Apple Podcasts and give Customer Show a five-star rating? It'll only take a few seconds, and ratings are really the best way to help new people discover the show. I see every rating and am beyond grateful for each one. And who knows, maybe one day you'll need something from me and then I can return the favor for you. So thanks again.